Well, if you were with us last week, we started a series, it's a six-week series, about relationships. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of titling it, it's all about relationships, but it's really about relational Christianity, and it's about relational ministry. And, you know, when we think about Christianity, different levels we can study it upon. You know, it, it, it's definitely, it's a revelation. Christianity is a revelation. It's been unfolding for thousands of years through Judaism and then through the coming of Christ. And so you can look at Bible prophecy. You can look at Bible archaeology. You can study history, uh, you know, Christian history. There's different ways we can look at our faith. But I think one of the most important things, especially when you look at the life of Jesus, our, our faith is really about relationships. The kingdom of God is about relationships with one another. And so this series is exploring those relationships and hopefully helping us get stronger in those relationships and, and coming to new levels in those relationships, maybe hopefully in our home life, but how it's impacting people around us. And especially you and me who are called to ministry, uh, understanding people's hearts and how uh, people can get healed and whole and helped and uh, strengthened to move forward in their relationships and forward in the kingdom. That's, that's one of the gists and one of the main reasons we're going through this series. And so uh, I got just a couple. This is relational algebra and relational math. Relationships are a lot like algebra. Have you ever looked at your ex and wondered why? Anyway, just a little starter. Uh, I found this one too. I can't take this long-distance relationship anymore. Fridge, you're coming to my room. It's all about relationships, I know. Those are little, little, little starters, slow starters, but sometimes you don't know. We get, need to wake the room up just a little bit. But. So it really is about relationships, and today we're going to talk about one aspect of those relationships concerning our relationship with Jesus. Tim Keller, he said this, ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another, and that is what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. If you favor money, power, and accomplishments over human relationships, you'll dash yourself on the rocks of reality. And I've watched that through time where people put their focus, where people put their energy. I still remember being up in Pebble Beach on a home right off the golf course, and there was a couple that had come here on and off for several years. They lived in another place. They'd come through here once in a while, and we became friends, and I became the closest thing they had to a pastor, and, and he called me from Pebble Beach, and can you come? 911, can you come? Can you come? We're sitting in this beautiful house, and he said, I'd give it all up just to have my relationship with my wife back, because in pursuing other things and chasing other things, his, his heart shifted from nurturing the relationships around him into chasing stuff and doing other things. And so high value in the kingdom of God is relationships. High value to Jesus is, is how we get along with each other. High value in, in planning our future, where we invest our time, where we invest our energy is in strengthening and building relationships. Do you believe that this morning? This is what Henry Blackaby, he's a revivalist, and he, he wrote, wrote a great book, Experiencing God and Developing Friendship with God. He says it this way, to be loved by God is the highest relationship, the highest achievement, and the highest position in life. And so when I recognize I have relationship with God, that he loves me, that he cares for me, when, when that's a reality to me and I'm living that out, then that flows out in my relationships with other people, and it's it's so important that we continue to think about and develop 
relationship with Him because just like any relationship, there's things we do intentionally, say intentionally, to maintain and grow in those relationships. Amen? So today, I want to talk to you about one aspect of relationships, and this is idea that it was a label given to Jesus, and it was that He was a friend of sinners. Jesus, friend of sinners. In Matthew's gospel and, and, and Luke's gospel, two different places, it's recorded that this, this title was given to him, not by friends, really, but it was given to him by his enemies. That out of 134 different names that we find in titles for Christ in, in the New Testament, in the Bible, this one, friend of, enem- friend of sinners, was really given to him by his enemies who were making fun of him. Just like when the Methodist movement rose up, that, that whole term Methodist came as an accusation or a criticism. Wesley was teaching his guys a system of discipleship and a system of study and a system of accountability. And they scoffed at him as, oh, they're just Methodists. But little did they know, just in a little while later, that Methodist movement changed the whole world. And the critics of it had to recant. Well, here's Jesus. The original criticism, he's a friend of sinners, but because of that, that, that mindset, that connection, that heart towards lost people, that heart towards broken people, that, that heart that he displayed relationally towards people that were not in covenant or weren't from the Jewish background, and that, that heart he had, it, it turned the world right side up, literally, because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Anybody glad he's a friend of sinners? Anybody glad that that's one of his titles? It might be not the most glorious title, there's Lord and King and He who reigns, rules, Savior, Deliverer. Those are, those are mighty titles. But when he allowed himself to be called friend of sinner, it brought a, a, a friend of sinners, it brought a whole other dimension to our understanding of who this God is that we love. Amen? So let's look at the, that term friend. It, it comes from the Greek word phylos, and it means a friend or a beloved or someone dearly loved or prized in a personal intimate way. So when Scripture says he's a friend of sinners, it's just not an acquaintance. I've had, heard people, you probably have too, I probably do it myself. You met a guy a few times and you go, oh yeah, he's my friend. Oh yeah, Jim down at the gas station, yeah, he, he's my friend. Well, I know him about this deep and he pumps gas or changes my oil, but is he a friend? And when Jesus says friend, he's talking about philos, a friend, a beloved, someone dearly loved, prized in a personal intimate way. So friend of sinners, it means he, he, he prizes us. It means he looks upon us in an intimate way with special intentions, with desire to know, desire to connect. A trusted confidant, held dear in a close bond of personal affection. That's philos or philos. That, that uh, connected intimacy that the Lord wants to have with you and me. Scripture defines that he's a friend of sinners. He wants to develop that in our lives. So this root field conveys experiential, personal affection. The root of this word, it's just not a distant relationship, but philos means that he wants to know me. And I can't believe that sometimes, that God, the God of the universe, would want to know me. Just a little sidestep. Somebody sent me an amazing clip, and it's posted on my Facebook page, but it's, it's how scientists now, this newer research about how they're measuring the world and the chances of it being formed by chance versus by intelligent design. I mean, this argument is blowing away the critics of creation. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal just 
leaps they're making in understanding that the world, the earth that we live in, there's no way it could be by chance. After exploring with you know, these radio telescopes all over the universe, they're coming up that this is such a unique place and a unique planet and a unique system that it doesn't exist anywhere else because we have a personal God who designed it to have relationship with him. They designed this place to house people that would have relationship with him. And that's the only reason we're here, for a relationship with him. I don't know, that, that excites me. It challenges me. It puts a big question mark like why and a bigger question mark like how, God, can I stay and just grow and keep in a relationship with how wonderful you are. Relational Christianity is the people and processes God uses to restore the image of God in you and reconcile you into friendship with him. And, and I was just getting this download from the Lord when we were in worship this morning about that idea of, you know, why, why he changes us. He loves us where he, we are, but why he would call us friends and work in our life to change us. One of the songs we sang this morning was like, God, I come to you in dust. And I get that. Our friendship with him often begins in our neediness, our brokenness, that we've come to him, many of us have our stories, or we came to him through addiction, or we came to him through periods of divorce, or brokenness, or bankruptcy, or desperation, when life was just so messed up, we started looking up. Many of us came that way, and we look at him through the dust, and the Lord would just speak into my heart, that, that's Mike, how you and me became friends. In my desperation, we became friends. But this is the cool thing about friendship with the Lord, that he, he just doesn't leave you in that place. He wants to grow you up so you can relate to him in a different way. So you can relate to him as a son of God and a daughter of God and not always relate to him in your brokenness, but relate to him in your wholeness. See, I have friends that I call on when I, I have needs. Last year, my twin brother and I, we turned 60 and we gathered up our family and we were looking for a place to go celebrate and we have a friend, Rick, who's got a six-bedroom cabin at June Mountain. We called in a friend kind of deal. And I couldn't have called Rick and said, hey, Rick, can, can we borrow your mountain house if he was broke and busted and still where he was 20 years ago when he came out of drugs? No, his life changed. And as his life changed, even friendships become different. As I've grown, people can call on me for different things now because I've matured. I'm not just down in the dust anymore, but my relationship with God has grown. I've known a few things. I've got some more resources. I've got some more connections. And so the friendship changes. And so when Jesus invites us into friendship, I'm glad we're a friend of sinners, but I also know that he's a friend of sinners, but I also know this, that he begins to change us. And as he changes us, the friendships begin to change. He can call on you now. He's a friend. He could call you up. He could trust you at midnight. Would you do something for me? There's a guy in trouble. Would you go reach out to that person? He can call on you now because the friendship's shifted. You're not just in your need and you're not just in your brokenness, but now in your wholeness as you've grown up, the friendship shifts. Some friends that were in our same ministerial association, they're in Tulsa and a new ministry that's connected to our, our association. I, I met this church, their pastor. They came to lead worship at our convention. And uh, there's some things going on where they, they just needed somebody to pick up one of their guys in, in L.A. and take them to a center for help. And they're looking for friends to do that. 
And that connection that we have, that friends, you can rely on because they have resources. You can rely on them because now they're, they're, they're connected. And as we grow, that friendship changes. And Jesus, he's calling us friends. He's looking for friends. Anybody want to be that kind of friend with God? See, Jesus says this, this is in John's Gospel 15. He says, as the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love as one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on and defines friends. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And wow, this, this, this definition of friendship, it's just not that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and I'm just glad that he loves me in my mess. No, this friendship says he's a friend of sinners and he finds me where I'm at and he elevates me to a new level and to a new identity and a new personhood so I can have effective, fruitful, intimate, amazing fellowship with him so he can trust me, use me, work through me as a friend of his and a friend of the kingdom and not just a servant or a slave. Does that make sense to anybody? And what an invitation. What an invitation. Tell your neighbor you're a friend of God. Tell them that this morning. You've been elevated to friendhood. And so let's break this down a little bit. I'm going to take these passages, the promises Jesus made, and we'll just look at them in a little deeper detail. He said this, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. This is covenant love. It's fully committed love. It's not the Father has a good feeling towards you because you live in North America it's not that broad. He, he, he loves you because you're part of this group or this church. No, it's an individual love. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I've loved you. And the Father's love, when you trace it through the Gospels, you hear it broadcast. The Father is fully committed to his love with Jesus. When he's baptized, heaven opens up, thunderous voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father speaking over the Son and fully committed to relationship with him. He, he says, this is the guy, he's pleasing me. He's blessed. The Father's speaking about Jesus, that my hand is on him, that I, I, I'm connected, we're, we're united. Jesus said that same love that the Father has towards me, I have towards you. Jesus said this, everything that my Father has has been put in my hands. In other words, this kind of love, God makes every resource available. All things have been handed to me by my Father. I have all authority. I have all power. Jesus said, I want to love you the same way, where you can be entrusted with my resources. You can be entrusted with my authority, with my name. That's the kind of friendship he's looking for. I want to be all all in on that one. How about you? Number two, this other part of growing together and having a relationship is beware relational sins. He said it this way, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so we're going to unpack this in the next week or two. But this idea of relational sins, you know, there's different kinds of sins I guess we could commit. You know, cheating on your taxes might be one thing, but, but slander and gossip against your brother is another deal. 
you know, committing some kind of sin against the law, and, and that, that might be one kind of sin, but Jesus was particularly hard on relational sins, where he had an issue with another person, where you were tempted to stumble a younger one or stumble a little one. That one was harsh. Jesus said, stumbling a little one, it'd be rather, you'd be better off trying to go swimming with a millstone around your neck than to stumble relationally one of the little ones. So for you and me, this thing about abiding in love, we have to take inventory of our relational, uh, you know, how, how we're connecting with other people, things we're saying, things we're doing, because relational sins are big in the kingdom of God. That's why so much, he said, before you even give your offering, if you have ought with somebody, go and get that thing right. And, and, and then come back and present your offering. Thank you for the other part. That's, that's the treasure side of it. Don't forget to come back, though, and bring your offering. No, but that relational part is, is huge. And so when I think about relational sins that can impact us, which could pull us out of the love of God. See, he said he'd never leave us nor forsake us, but you know in your life, and I know in my life and my relationship with Jan, I made a vow. I'm never going to divorce Jan. By the grace of God, we're going to stay committed till one of us goes home. Hopefully, we both get to go home together. But I know this, there's times I'm abiding in her love, and I feel that, and I sense that closeness, and then there's times where I feel like there's a, a gap between us, or tension between us, or there's division between us, and some of those are because of relational sins, things, comments I've made when I let my tongue get harsh, or negative, or complaining, or nitpicking. And so those same things, when Jesus commands us in that passage in John 15 to abide in my love... He's saying, beware of the relational sins that, that drive wedges between you and me and between one another. Sometimes that's just, you know, quick little accusation or a gossip or a slander or something when I get too critical. And so that's why he encourages throughout the Gospels to forgive quickly, to, in the epistles too, to get those things right so we, uh, we can stay in relational harmony. Amen? Might take that to another level next week. Relational sins are like the slow unraveling of a rope. The strands of trust and respect and personal care and compassion begin to break, and the strength that held friends and family together is destroyed. And I've watched it happen that exact same way. It's like it just starts wearing, and then one strand, and another strand, and another strand, and pretty soon the things that held families together, or these two groups of families together, or this person and that person together... Also in marriage, you see it begin to erode, and you get to see the strands break, and nobody's maintaining, nobody's trying to tie it back together, and before long, the very bond that held people together has been disintegrated, and sometimes it's one strand at a time just because of relational sins that don't get dealt with. This is Francis Frangipane, and I, I like this quote because it's so true, and I've watched this over and over, even parents raising kids. There's something like radar inside the human heart that senses the displeasure of others. Displeasure and gratitude are like a repellent to human relationships. And so when you start, maybe not even saying it, but you start emanating displeasure for other people or displeasure for another race or displeasure for another socioeconomic class of person, when you start emanating displeasure because the brother's politically different than you are or or there, there's just this displeasure that can come from us, maybe not even from our words, Th that thing is a total repellent. And 
I, I remember years ago when I was youth pastor, and we didn't really have, this is when we first started, we didn't have anywhere for the, the youth to hang out. So we hung out on the steps of the church. And we were wild and loud and, and that, and it bothered some of the senior saints that were coming to church. They didn't want the youth hanging out on the front steps when people are coming to church. And the youth felt that. And I could try and tell them, well, well, you know, guys, I mean, sometimes it's true. You are fighting with each other. You could hurt somebody coming. I mean, I could try and explain it away, but it, it, it really started affecting them, impacting them. It could repel them, this idea that we're not welcome here. There's a displeasure coming. And those things can poison our relationships. Amen? So we need to be aware of and we need to be cognizant of and not let the relational sins determine our, our friendships. Determine the relationship. Number three, this is Jesus speaking. Some use DTRs, define the relationship, but it's really, it's already defined. You and me just determine how strong our relationships are going to be with him. Our friendship will be. It says, greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And so he, he spells it out. He could take a ruler here and say, this is how you measure love. And you measure love concerning commitment and sacrifice. Because it's really easy to love when everybody's friends and everybody's slapping each other on the back and you're having a good time and, you know, you just went to a party together or exchanging gifts. Everybody's having fun. But he said this. This is, this is how you begin to measure it. Covenant love, it requires some commitment and sacrifice. And so no, no true love grows without it. So in a culture that's having trouble committing... I find even in premarital counseling that, that there's often a lot of just affection and love and romance and fun and things that they're doing together. But marriage says this, we're taking it to the next level. This is about commitment now. This is about a covenantal love, which is going to require some sacrifice and some commitment. I tell you what, don't get into covenant with somebody unless you know they're capable of sacrifice, unless you know they're capable of, of committing and, and even through tough times. So covenant love, Jesus defines it. He says, determine the relationship. Define the relationship. If you love me, there's going to be sacrifice involved. If, if you love me, there's going to be commitment involved. And true love can be measured more than just by feelings when he says, you know, if you obey me, you keep my commandments, you're demonstrating love. Well, obey has got to do with vows and loyalty and trust and responsibilities. And so it's beyond feelings. As we grow in relationships and get stronger in relationships, there's this element of sacrifice and there's this element of, buddy, I'm going to be there for you as best as I can. Sometimes I let people down, but... Your heart is like, I want to help you out. I'm there for you. And if it takes some sacrifice on my part, I'm in. We have a covenantal love. And then he promises this in John 15, 15. This is one of the benefits of just this, this covenantal love. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. And, you know, when you just read that at face value, it can just sound like uh, uh, just, again, this ongoing command or description of friendships, but it's an invitation. He said, I'm not calling you servants anymore, but I'm calling you friends, and friends is at a different level. I'm going to show you what my father's doing. I'm going to let you in on the inside stuff. I'm going to reveal to you what the Holy Spirit's doing. He says in Daniel, those people that know their God will be strong and do exploits. 
And so as I grow in friendship with God, and he can call on me, and he can look to me, and, 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 and I look to him, that relationship grows. There's things that we get to experience like I would never experience outside of taking those steps to grow. The things in missions, the people we've met, the open doors, the divine connections. Uh, A.L. Gill, some of you know A.L. Gill. He's probably in his 80s now. Uh, that, that was a divine connection that led to Cambodia and to China and to doing things uh, that because we stepped into a relationship and developed the relationship. You know, Jesus says, not because you're servants, but because you're friends, I'm going to show you what the Father's doing and include you in on those things. That's good news, amen? And it makes life exciting and it makes life interesting. And so the people that came forward earlier because they're ready for God's next, I'd say work on that friendship, the hearing ear with the Lord. Develop that relationship with him, and the next is going to be super exciting. It, it's, it takes the limits off. When, when Jesus said, I invite you in to what the Father's doing, there's going to be resources when you start stepping out in those things. There's going to be help and new growth when you step into those things, and it's rooted in saying, yes, Lord, I want to develop my friendship with you and the good news is he took a step for us, towards us, when he said, I'll be friends with sinners. Chief, foremost, here I am. John the Baptist, now, now, now this is the last point, really. I'm going to wrap up with this. But John the Baptist, when he, he started talking about his relationship with Jesus, they, they knew John was baptizing, that he's a prophet, and powerful things were happening, amazing things were happening around John the Baptist. And... Uh, Jesus, John said this, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now, this is what he said. I, I am not the bridegroom, but I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And this is a cool deal for the friend of the bridegroom because he's part of the whole preparation. He understands when the wedding is and where it's going to be and when about it's going to happen. But what happens, the groom starts going to prepare the place to receive the bride. And the groom's fixing up the house and he's getting ready to, to bring her there. And so there's friends gathering and friends working on things. And the, the groom is telling the friend of the bridegroom, he's telling, this is what I want to do. And this is going to be the surprise. And she's just going to be so amazed when she comes into the suite and sees what I put in there because it's got her colors and her personal touch. And, and the bridegroom's explaining all these things to the friend of the bridegroom and invites him into every detail. And then when it comes time for the marriage feast, the friend of the bridegroom gets to go tell her, he's coming, he's coming, he's going to receive you, it's time, it's time. And when John the Baptist describes you and me as friends of the bridegroom, guess what? Jesus is coming back soon. And he's allowed us to be part of the preparation. And he's allowed us to be able to tell people, hey, you, you need to meet this guy. He's awesome. He changed my whole life. He's given me direction and future and vision and hope and help and healed me. And you should see what he's doing in my family right now. There's revival in my children. There's, God's just doing amazing things in my house. I'm considered a friend of the bridegroom. And I get to point them to Jesus and say there's a time coming really soon when this chaos and this madness and this political upheaval, it's going to dim as the glory of the God's kingdom just comes brighter and brighter, and you and me get to be a part of that. And I'm considered a friend of the bridegroom. I just got to be best man for a guy. 
James and I shared a little of that. James came through just a season of brokenness and I watched him for 30 years and I saw him get his life turned around and the first time he wrote me was from prison and desperate and reading a new age book and just going a whole different direction and we got to resources him with some stuff and next letter things are shifting and Send him some men's material next letter. He's meeting with a men's group. Send him more men's material next letter. He's leading 30 guys in a men's group. And I just got to see the transformation happen in his life. And then when he got out, he asked me to be his best man. I got to stand with the bridegroom. And, and I've seen his story and I've watched what's happened. And what a privilege. And in the kingdom of God, we're friends of the bridegroom. And we're going to get to see what God is preparing. And we get to see it already. The Lord is doing some amazing things. And you and me get to be part of that. And it's a pretty, pretty cool thing. Amen? This is what we got to be careful of, truly. Because when we think sometimes that, you know, I'm I'm a buddy with Jesus. I'm a buddy with Jesus. and, And I get that. And so I've been talking about that part of the relationship. But if the pendulum swings too far over, we... We get this idea that he's just my running buddy and we're just cool and he's okay with everything I'm doing. No, he defines the relationship. I I flow with that relationship. And and this is the, I said that was the last scripture I forgot. This one's the one that I want you to see. One more. And and this is in Hebrews 7 and, and it describes a different relationship in our friendship with him because he's called as an intercessor. In other words, he's praying for you and me. It says, therefore, he is able, this is Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Read the yellow with me, since he always lives to make intercession for him. He's living right now. He's praying for us. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless and undefiled. And read that yellow with me. He's separate from sinners. So we can get this mindset, he's a friend of sinners, and he was accused of eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the other guys, the party guys. And so I've heard it shared and preached, like why guys are in bars and playing poker and doing all the other stuff. They just blended in with the world because Jesus was a friend of sinners. But this, this said he was separate from sinners. He went into where they were, but he was offering a way out, a way up, a better life, a new reality. He, he didn't go to the place just to hang out and to drink, party, and sin and do whatever they were doing. No, he came, he went with a whole different purpose. And now he lives in intercession saying, I'm calling you to a higher friendship. I'm calling you out of the old into the new. I got plans for you. I got a business plan for you. I got family plans for you. And, and I want to be in relationship with you. And so this idea that he's living to make intercession for us Uh, The truth is he shapes those whom he loves, and he shapes us into friends. And one of that thing, the word or definitions of intercession, there's different roots to that word intercession, but one of them is he's pleading on one's behalf. And so sometimes I can sense him pleading with me, and I can think back in times where he pled with me and talked to me about forsaking old to embrace new. Prayer, intercession, means to light upon or for the benefit of, to come in line with or to intersect. So when he's praying that these intersections, these people we meet, these divine appointments, our times in devotionals, those, those things he's praying that those will draw us into deeper friendship with him, that there will be a stronger intersection of our life with his life. Jesus said in Luke 22, Simon, I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. 
See, there's times that you want us, he, we want him to deliver us out of things. But when he's praying for Simon, he said, Simon, I know right what you're going through. And this is my prayer that your faith isn't going to fail in the middle of it. And that fountain of life that comes when he says, these things I've spoken that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That's his desire for you and me. Amen?